I think when I first acquired my injury and had this realization that I was going to be disabled and use a wheelchair, I was like, okay, well, this is different. You know, I think at six years old, I wasn't old enough to fully understand what disability was. I think as I grew older, my perception of disability changed because society's perception of disability was far different than I imagined it to be. There are a lot of messages in society that invalidate you and invalidate who you are purely because you you move around the world in a different way. So over time, when those messages are continually sent to you, you start to change how you feel about yourself and, and how you perceive yourself, which certainly was the case for me. I went from a six-year-old kid who was like, okay, I just got to navigate the world differently to like, man, <laughs> I don't belong in a lot of these spaces. <laughs> like, I'm getting a lot of messages that say like, you do not belong here and that that's hard. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. At the age of six, Stephanie Wheeler lost both her mother and the use of her legs in a car accident. But after years of feeling like she didn't belong, Stephanie was introduced to wheelchair basketball, which forever changed her life. Today, you'll get to hear from a world-class coach and athlete that faced a traumatic growth experience and used it to propel not only herself, but those around her to new heights. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, go to www.ericquorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Stephanie, I'm really excited to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You have an awesome and amazing story that I can't wait to dig into. And I just really want to start at the beginning today. You know, at the age of six, you lost your mother and you suffered a traumatic spinal cord injury in a car accident. Like, how did that change you as a kid? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's certainly something that you never want to experience, right? Like, you know, having to go through acquiring spinal cord injury, losing someone who is really important in your life. And, you know, I think for me, being a six-year-old, I think social opportunities are really important for young people, right? And and so, you know, for me, being at school with my friends was like exciting and being on the playground with my friends was exciting and being physically active was exciting to me. And so, you know, for me, I feel like I almost lost the sense of, of belonging with my peers because the way that I connected with them was taken away from me, right? Like it was something that I didn't feel like I belonged in that space anymore. And so, you know, along with obviously going through and processing, you know, how do I now live life differently using a wheelchair, you know, from walking to having to use a wheelchair and, and navigating that and you know, navigating being back in school now and your friends seeing you as someone different and, you know, navigating life now without a parent. I think all those things are are challenging their own way. And if, like I said, if I can kind of, you know, condense that, if you can, mm-hmm. into something, I think it's belonging, right? Like I needed a space to belong and, and feel like that now this, you know, injury that I acquired, this difference that I now had from my teammates, or my, my teammates, my classmates and mm-hmm. at the time that it wasn't going to be something that didn't allow me to belong like I used to. So 
I think that was the big thing for me is just this lack of, of belonging. And that's kind of, so you kind of felt isolated, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would and you try. you in a small town, right? Like, yeah. This isn't like a big metropolitan area. Right. <laughs> no, I think that might be an important piece to preface with. Um, yeah, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina with a thousand people. Mm. And so like, you know, literally like you kind of know everybody. And I think everybody either knew me or knew of me because my my grandfather was like the manager of our local grocery store. And, and because... I was in this accident. So everybody kind of knows who you are. I was really fortunate though, that while, you know, I felt isolation for, you know, some different reasons of, of being included with my peers and connected with my peers, man, I was so lucky to be in that small town because that small town took care of me and mm. that small town helped raise me. And I don't think I fully appreciated that until maybe in the last like five to 10 years on how important that was. Because I think, you know, at the time when you're young, you want to maybe get away, right? I know that's what I wanted to do. So I think these feelings of, of isolation and belonging or not belonging and, and wanting to belong versus fitting in, I think those are just sort of built up over time, right? And just not feeling like it was the place to be. How did you, how did you feel about your injury? And Versus what did the world think about, you know, let's use this word disability. Yeah. You know, I think when I first acquired my injury and had this realization that I was going to be disabled and use a wheelchair, I was like, okay, well, this is different. I'm now different (laughs) Mm. from all of my peers. You know, I think at six years old, I wasn't old enough to fully understand what disability was. And I think maybe that's a good thing. Because I kind of adapted, right? Like I learned how to use my wheelchair. At the time, I learned how to use braces and a walker and to try to Mm -hmm. walk around. And I think as I grew older, my perception of disability changed because society's perception of of disability was far different than I imagined it to be. Mm. You know, I think when you're disabled and there are a lot of messages in society that invalidate you and invalidate who you are purely because you, you move around the world in a different way. We seem to think that just because someone uses a wheelchair or has lost the use of their legs or, you know, whatever that disability might be, that their value in society has declined and it's not there, right? That that we're not valuable. And so over time, when those messages are continually sent to you, you start to change how you feel about yourself and, and how you perceive yourself, which certainly was the case for me. I, you know, went from a six year old kid who was like, okay, I just got to navigate the world differently to like, man. I don't belong in a lot of these spaces. Like I'm getting a lot of messages that say like, you do not belong here. And you know, that that's hard. That's hard. I'll tell you what, like I was not disabled. Okay. Let's put that in quotes. Yeah. But there's other ways that we push people to the fringes. I was a really overweight kid. Mm -hmm. And like, I dealt with bullying a lot when I was young and society sends these signals, the world sends these signals that like, eh, and granted, like I could still walk around on my two feet, but at the same time, I didn't like this whole thing of belonging. Like since we talked about it a couple of days ago, it's really kind of been in my head or it's just like, are we creating a place where people feel like they belong 
And when you are by yourself, like you have two ways to go. You can either develop the grit to move forward. And sometimes it's you're blessed because you have a great support structure, which you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other people don't. I don't know. It's just something for the, it got me thinking a lot about like, how do I, what signals am I sending? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think I ponder on that exact thing a lot, particularly in my position as a coach, right? Like I think mm. that's one of our most important jobs. Maybe our, maybe our most important job as a coach is to create belonging. I think anyway. And you're exactly right. I had an incredible support system growing up and my, my family was incredible. You know, they pretty much supported me in anything I wanted to do to when I wanted to start playing wheelchair basketball to when, you know, I wanted to be in school band, like whatever it was, the support was there. Right. And so they're very loving about it. And so that's great. And that certainly helped me, but I still think, you know, we kind of have to have that journey on our own um, at times and that journey to belonging. And for me, you know, that journey was predicated on just figuring out who I am, right? And how to bring that every single day. Like I still search for belonging sometimes and I'm 40, right? Like I think it's a it's a constant journey that we're on and it means different things in, in different situations. So yeah, it's something I think about all the time. But for you, you know, you had this six years. Yeah. Six years, <laughs> like call like a desert experience almost. Yeah. As yeah. a young child and and then at 12 years old, you know, you found wheelchair basketball. You want to talk mm-hmm. about how that, what, how that unfolded? Absolutely. I'd love to. So before my accident, my injury, you know, I was a super active kid. I played all the rec league sports in my tiny little town. Like you could always find me outside or playing something. Um, I was a super physically active kid. And then when my injury happened, being from a small town and being in a community where I'm one of the, um, you know, a handful of kids with a disability. There aren't many sporting opportunities. Um, Actually, there aren't any. I shouldn't say many. Mm -hmm. There aren't any (laughs) with my disabled peers. And so, yeah, there was a six year period to where I had no access to sport. And really the only access I had to physical activity was potentially recess, potentially PE at school, though, you know, those weren't always the smoothest of, of adventures as well. My teachers did the best they could, but, you know, they weren't quite sure how to fully include me as well. So, yeah, it was six years before I found sport again. And so I happened to be at a doctor's appointment and I was in my wheelchair and the parent of someone, another kid with a disability who played wheelchair basketball came over to me and said, hey, like, um, I see you use a wheelchair. We have a wheelchair basketball team here locally in, in Durham would you like to play? And I, I'm pretty sure like my eyes lit up, like, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if I like yelled like, oh my gosh, yes. Or it was just one of the most exciting phrases I'd ever heard in my life because I'd been so desperately wanting to be physically active. And so I, at the time I lived with my grandfather after my accident. And so I talked to him, my family around me, and they took me to practice the next Saturday. And I'm not sure I've gone a day without basketball being a part of my life since then. And that, that wasn't like a short drive though, right? That wasn't like right down the street. <laughs> no. So my first couple of years playing, we practiced about two, two and a half hours away from my house where I lived. So that was like every weekend piling in the car with my family, driving four or five hours round trip. So I could have like two hours of basketball practice every week with my teammates Wow, all come together. So yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot to ask of, of my family. I'm grateful. Like, I'm so grateful that they 
were able to support me in that way because it was it was absolutely life changing and and path changing. Mm. So you you go from a six year old that has this desert experience. You're by yourself. You don't belong, and then some other child reaches out mm-hmm. and is like, "Hey, here's a place you could belong." Mm-hmm. And then I just think it's so cool that your family, like it's a sacrifice, a sacrifice of time, resources. And then you just kind of start taking off. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just to, I mean, just looking at you, you are built for basketball. You got long arm, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So it's like, <laughs> yeah, physically you were kind of in there and then you found your thing and now all of a sudden you're a stud athlete. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so amazing, right? Like you, you go from the space of like a physical activity desert. I think that's a great way to put it. I've never thought about that, but you know, I wasn't getting those, that physical literacy that a lot of young kids are getting at that time on how to move your body and, you know, what your body's like in space to going into a situation where it's basketball. Like, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. Like if you don't love basketball, you kind of, you get kicked out. So (laughs) I loved basketball even before I started playing. So going from, not playing the game to being exposed to it, to being exposed to like, Oh my gosh, I have teammates who also use wheelchairs to I'm actually kind of good. I kind of have this raw ability. Like my body is built for basketball, got long arms. Like that's super helpful. (laughs) Yeah. To going into a space where it's like, all right, like I'm a good player. Like, can this take me somewhere? And, and, and just, I love playing the game. Like I loved it. Like it was just, my place to belong. And I felt free and I felt athletic and I felt like all the other messages I've been receiving about where my body fits and who I should be at that time. Anyway, as a kid, they were gone. I was Mm. where I belonged. Mm. And so like you rose up the ranks in high school. What was your, your national status as far as an athlete? (laughs) So coming out of high school, like, I'm not sure many people know who I was. So just to give you a little bit of a landscape of, of just wheelchair basketball at the youth level. Yeah. One, it's a co-ed sport at the youth level, which I think has its pros and cons for sure. It's a a co-ed sport, depending on where you live, depends on how much access you have. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some states that have four five, six teams. There's some states like where I grew up that had one at the time. We weren't super competitive. <laughs> um, yeah. We would play like maybe, maybe 10 games a year. So actually my exposure came through a summer camp. That's how my coach actually found out about me. So there are summer wheelchair basketball camps that, and more now, thank, thank goodness, um, that young athletes can go to. So I went to this basketball camp that was put on by a disability sport organization the summer Let's see. That would have been the summer before, actually before my senior year of high school. Like that's how late in the game it was. Mm. And my college coach was there, Mike Frogley. And he was the head coach at the University of Illinois at the time. And I was there with all these other women who were ran the gamut from my age and a little bit younger, all the way up to women who played. And he saw something in me and started recruiting me after that. And, and, saw that I had potential, I think, to develop into a really great athlete. So to kind of piggyback on that, the college opportunities for women that at that time for wheelchair basketball were pretty sparse. Mm. The University of Illinois was the only place I could go if I wanted to play wheelchair basketball and get a college degree. 
fortunately we're in a bit better spot, but yeah. You're being very humble. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like University of Illinois was like some just like, oh, I have to go to University <laughs> of Illinois. Like not only was it the only program, like, but the head coach was a national team coach, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, not only was it the only program, but it's where wheelchair basketball started. And I mean, come on now. It's been kind of a cornerstone <laughs> program. It's kind of looked at as one of the top programs in the world, right? Like, yeah. you know, we've produced a lot of Paralympians and stuff like that. And, you know, my coach here at Illinois at the time was the head coach of the Canadian men's team and um, is, is regarded then and now as probably the best coach in the world. So, yeah, I, I, my teams were incredible. I, I think uh, as a shy kid from a town of a thousand people going 800 miles away from home into this environment here in Illinois where you had the best of the best. Like at the time, the core of our national team was here. Our U.S. national team was here. I had this high-level coach. I was coming into this situation where I'm like, I was the best on my high school team. And now I'm coming in and I'm all right. <laughs> but in no way, shape, or form do I feel like I belong here right now. <laughs> I got well, to get good. every day. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, there's something, you went through traumatic growth as a six-year-old. Like you mm-hmm. had post-traumatic growth. Like you want to talk mm-hmm. about resiliency. That's what happened to you. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. as a coach, we can talk about having, you know, when you recruit an athlete, that is almost something you're looking for is somebody that's had an experience in life that's very difficult and they've demonstrated that they've worked hard to overcome that. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a different type of situation. Nothing was taken from you. Mm-hmm. The game, the, the playing field just got taken to a whole nother level. <laughs> and, you know, I've seen that transition as a college coach working in elite programs where, you know, like at the Florida States where I was at, where we brought in number one recruiting classes mm-hmm. and these top tier athletes come in and they, some of them struggle and they, you know, they end yeah. up having great careers, but it's like, all of a sudden you see the difference between you and them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, you're like, okay, I'm the same size or whatever, but they're mm-hmm. still the mm-hmm. mental model. Like talk about what yeah. that was like, like your first couple practices. Yeah. My first couple practices were tough. Um, they were really tough because of that. Like I came in and we had us national team players, Canadian national team players in our program. We trained with our men's team sometimes, again, loaded with national team caliber players. And, you know, there were a couple of days I didn't want to come back. I was like, okay, is this, is this for me, man? I am a long way from home. Do you ever call home and say, hey? Oh my gosh, I was so homesick (laughs) for as much as I I was ready to leave. Like I was, I was ready to leave my small town. I felt like I needed to leave to grow. That's why I made the choice. I could have stayed home and gone to like UNC Chapel Hill or, you know, somewhere like that. I knew I needed to leave to grow. And I was, I was desperate for that. Like I just wanted something more. And so there were certainly times I'd call home and I probably was in tears or something and (laughs) was saying like, oh man, I don't know this is for me. But one, I was, there was never that point where my family was like, all right, well, if you want to come home, come on home. Like they Mm. sort of were in that position where they're like, okay, well, how are we going to help you through this? Like, you know, what is it that you need? And I think that was really important. And then two, I had some really great teammates who, while they would challenge me in the gym and they would be on me and and pushing me in the way I needed to be pushed, they were also really great off the court to ensure that I knew 
this is where I needed to be. Like there are some practices where I had no idea what I was doing. And I probably have been in tears at practice too. Mm. But you know, one of my teammates who remains my best friend, one of my best friends in the world, like she just constantly, and she's like, Hey, you're doing the right things. Like you'll get better. I felt like this last year. She was a year ahead of me in school. And she's like, you know, I felt like this at times and this is okay. This is part of the process. And that just helped me stay. And I just, I wanted it. I wanted to be here. I was frustrated, but I was soaking it all up. And I knew that this is where I wanted to be. That is awesome. And wheelchair basketball ain't no joke. And uh, <laughs> I say that because, you know, you know, I talked about, I had an opportunity. I was at the University of Kentucky during the halftime of a game to play a regional team. Mm-hmm. I say play. Uh, it was me and some other coaches and staff members, and we got completely thrashed. I mean, <laughs> the physicality, yeah. contact, mm-hmm. speed. It's like any other sport, the nuances of I, like how they would maneuver the ball and the chair. There's just so much complexity. You just think about you know, you're walking in or running and not thinking about it and maneuvering a ball. Now you're having to engage an apparatus and locomotion. Mm-hmm. It is very impressive. I don't know <laughs> if we scored. And it, it was a lot of fun to get destroyed. And like my respect <laughs> level was like, wow, this is like, you know, it's like people are like, oh, golf, you know, can't be that hard. Go try to hit a golf ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then go do it like they do it, you know, on the pros. Mm-hmm. But you didn't just have like, you were just like a marginal basketball player in college. You not only did you have success, you won three national championships. And all those three years, I believe you, you were an all American each one of those years, right? Yeah, I was. And your face is turning so red. You're very humble. <laughs> and I believe one of those years you were also an MVP. Like how did that change you at all? Definitely. I think, um, you know, I can think back on my college career and there were a couple of defining moments from where I went from being someone who felt like I didn't know what I was doing to, oh, wow, okay, the light bulb may be starting to come on a little bit. I'm starting to really understand this and now I can play at that level where it's not automatic. I think we know that it's not automatic, but where it feels like that, right? Like you just you feel in that place to the place then where it's like, I demanded the absolute best of myself. So as a freshman, we were in our national championship tournament and semifinal game, one of my more experienced teammates fouls out and I've got to go in as a freshman. And um, it was close. It was a close game. Could have gone either way. And, you know, I went in and I could hear the other team like, foul the freshman, foul the freshman, right? Like to get her on the line. And I came in, I knocked down some big free throws. Uh, and help move my team to the championship game. And I think that was one of those moments where, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm all about a process, the process and I'm a process girl. I think that's why I loved the day-to-day training. And so, but that moment of outcome where I saw the benefit of all the work I was putting in and I saw the benefit of what I was doing and how hard my coaches and my teammates were pushing me. I'm like, all right, that felt great. Like, <laughs> I was able to perform and help my team. The national team coaches noticed me after that because I, you know, I came in at a pretty clutch moment and could produce for my team. And I got my first invite to a national team camp um, as a freshman in college. Didn't go my way. I didn't make the team that year. That would have been the team to go to the Sydney Paralympics. Um, but that's okay. I was devastated, but it was all right. 
I learned a lot from that experience, which only helped me then, you know, in those next few years, be able to have that light bulb come on again and become more confident in my skill set and then be able to, you know, demand that high level of performance from myself that's required to move from a college level to a national team level. Yeah. I mean, your launch is pretty amazing. Were there any athletes that you looked up to that kind of helped set that mind that like outside of your team? Were there pro yeah. athletes or somebody that you were like, man, I really gather a lot of, not, mm-hmm. I hate the word like motivation, but maybe more inspiration from the, mm-hmm. their work ethic or the way they approach the game. Yeah. So what's really interesting about when I grew up is that disability sport was not visible. And I think we're getting to a place now where that's changing. It's amazing, right? Like mm-hmm. from the Rio 2016, you could watch the Paralympics on TV. So yep. We have Tokyo this year. You're going to be able to watch the Paralympics on TV. And that's pretty amazing. Back in my day, <laughs> my athlete paid back, in the day. That, back in the day, you know, we didn't have that visibility. And so particularly being in a small town, like I didn't have a wheelchair basketball player or anything like that to look up to. Who I did look up to, though, because I'm from North Carolina, was Michael Jordan, right? Like, that was my guy. Yeah. He had a Tar Heel. I was a huge Tar Heel fan. He was a Tar Heel. He was obviously the Bulls at the time. I was a massive Michael Jordan fan, right? So, so with that yeah. said, <laughs> you and I are the same age. I grew yeah. up. I, and, you know, people talk about, like, oh, I love Jordan. Like, I like, wa- I, like that was it on TV. Like, I'm from Dallas. You could have watched the Mavericks. They weren't great at the time. Yeah. And it was like... Everybody watched the Bulls. Everybody. What did you think about the documentary that just came out and really seeing the things that we didn't see until now? Yeah, it's so interesting. It causes, I think, a little bit of cognitive dissonance with you because I was all in on MJ. All in. Like, you couldn't tell me anything different when I was a Mm -hmm. kid. Like, he's the greatest to walk the earth in a basketball perspective, right? And I still think that. To this day, greatest basketball player. After watching the documentary, one, you can see why he was great. Like he accepted nothing less than the best from himself. And like, that's impressive to consistently do that for as long as he did, right? You know, it's interesting to think about his leadership tactics (laughs) and how he pushed and got the best out of his teammates. Like, that's one of the things that I talk a lot about with our team is like, how do you get the best out of your teammates, right? Because that's part of your job as a great teammate. You know, I'm not sure that I could use some of his tactics or that our student athletes would would be all right with some of those tactics. But it's I found it fascinating to see what was behind the scenes and to see how that motivated his team. Right. And like how it got them to play at a higher level. I kind of find that fascinating. Do you think Michael Jordan's happy? (laughs) I don't know if he could ever be happy. Right. Because like, you know, his big thing was like, you know, he always wanted to be better than everybody else and be his best self. And so I don't think you can be happy when being better than everybody else is your pursuit. Mm. I think you can be happy and fulfilled if like you're trying to get to your best self. Mm-hmm. Because when you're constantly, you know, chasing other people or other teams or the next championship or whatever those are worthy pursuits but like as soon as that's over what do you have and as soon as that's over then you're 
back in the lab right away again because now that next chase is on. He's built a billion dollar company, I believe, in the MJ brand. And then you have, mm-hmm. you know, now in Charlotte basketball team and mm-hmm. now there's a motorsports team. Mm-hmm. Like I, as a competitor, I just, there's nothing. The guy was just uncanny. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting to me though. Like when he, when he realized like, and he accepted the ability that it, it can't be all on his back scoring 60 points a game. Mm-hmm. And then he bought into Phil Jackson's idea yeah. of like, we're going to have to spread this ball out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to win. And, um, you know, I don't think, I think him and Scotty, Scotty and him kind of became similar, even though there was this friction. Yeah. They knew that they were better together than apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting. Sorry to, to derail no. this conversation. No, I think it's, it's a, it's interesting to talk about, right? Because what a great way to talk about leadership or a great way to talk about competitiveness with our teams and with our student athletes. I don't, it doesn't have to be a right or wrong, or I would never do it this way or never do it that way. Like what a great conversation starter, right. And a great way to introduce leadership principles to your team is having these kind of conversations. So yeah, it's, it's one of my student athletes, current student athletes is about of a massive Michael Jordan fan as I am. So it, it was fun chatting with her and a couple of our other athletes about it. And, you know, if it changed our perception of, of, of MJ at all. <laughs> Very interesting. And actually, I don't know if I like finished. I don't think I fully answered your question <laughs> about okay. like, looking up to people. But yeah, Dude, well, let's let's dive into that. Who else did yeah. you look up to? Well, so I, I only say, you know, I say Michael Jordan because I didn't have any other disabled athletes to look up to. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing that our young people have, you know, good representation. Right. And so I would have loved it would have changed my whole like the way I saw myself. If I would have seen another female wheelchair basketball player Mm. doing what I wanted to do, that would have changed my perception. So the first wheelchair basketball player I ever saw that was a female was at that camp I actually talked about. I was 17. The very first time I saw someone Mm. that I wanted to be like, I saw some wheelchair basketball prior to, and I've been to a couple of like all sports camps prior to. But I'd never seen that one person. I was like, oh my gosh. And so Deb Sunderman, who um, in the wheelchair basketball world, she was one of our our biggest superstars on the wheelchair basketball side. And I saw her and I was like, oh man, I want to be just like her. Kind of the same thing with MJ, the competitiveness, the drive, how she moved on the court, how she worked with her teammates on the court. Like that was just everything to me. So Mm. that was really important that I had that female disabled role model that I could look up to. And then I think outside of that, I was a huge, like Cynthia Cooper fan, Tamika Catchings as I got older. So definitely some, some good basketball player influence there. I love it. So you move forward out of your college career. You do end up making the national team, right? Yeah. Second time, your second try. Did you get in? Yep. Second time was a charm. (laughs) What was that like? It was incredible. So that that opportunity came about a year, maybe a year and a half after not making my first team. They were selecting a team for world championships in 2002 and then the lead up to that. And so, you know, I I felt good actually after getting cut from my first team. <laughs> like it sucked and it was horrible. And I I was devastated. But what helped me in that moment, and I think it actually set my path for 
putting in the work and, and being able to, to understand what was needed to make that next team was the assistant coach for the team at that time when I got cut. One of them pulled me aside and was like, hey, let's go for a walk. This was after selections had been announced. Let's take a little walk. And we did. And he was just like, you know, you were really close to making this team. We, we had a hard decision and you did your job. You made our decision hard. Like, but, you know, we just chose to, to go with someone who has some more experience um, and who we want to give an opportunity at the Paralympic level. He's like, but your time is coming. So I want you to go back home. I want you to continue working hard, continue doing the things that you're doing. You're in the right environment. You've got, you know, one of the best coaches in the world. You've got the greatest teammates in the world. You're in a setting where you're going to be pushed to your best every single day. So you're in the place where your development is, it's, it's ripe, right? But don't let this be the thing that derails you. Did that help you feel like maybe I do belong there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like how cool of an opportunity as a coach to be able to do that for someone, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that's a make or break moment for a lot of people. I think when, when we get cut from teams, whether it be a national team or a high school team or whatever it might be. And I think, um, I think about that, you know, when I was a national team coach and how we handle cutting and stuff like that, it's just like, you know, the compassion that he showed and the care and wanting to ensure that I kept going. Right. That was absolutely massive for me. And like, okay, I'm going to be here soon. If I keep doing these things, this is going to be my place. Pretty awesome. And so you did end up making that national team and you ended up winning a couple of gold medals. (laughs) Athens and <laughs> Beijing. Yeah. I mean, so you you continue to excel now at the highest level in the world. When did you officially like retire from basketball? So I retired um, in 2010. Mm-hmm. Something that had escaped myself and actually the friend that I talked about at the beginning of my Illini career, uh, she and I retired at the same time and, and played our, our national team careers together. Mm-hmm we had never won a world championship. And so we were like, we, we want to win a world championship. We got to cap this off the right way. So we decided that 2010 would be our last go around and uh, we were able to come out on top there. So where, where was the 2010 away. played at? Where was that at? For us, it was in Birmingham, England. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, it was one of those things where at world championships in 2002, that was my first major competition. Mm-hmm. I was young, soaking it all in. We lost in the gold medal game. It was terrible. <laughs> we won in Athens. So we avenged our loss in 2002. Right. So at the time, Canada was on top of the world for women's wheelchair basketball. They had won the past, let's see, one, two, three Paralympic gold medals. And they had just been dominant. They beat us in 2002 at world championships. And then we were able to come back around and take the gold in 04 and kind of end that streak. But then we came back around in 06 and lost again at world championships to Canada. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, we didn't need it to feel like we were successful as athletes, but you know, it was something that, that we wanted to do together and get a great team and we were able to go in and, and pull it out. So we were happy about it. That's pretty amazing. A lot of people don't, maybe don't pay attention to the fact that there's world championships and then there's Olympics. And so they're, they're, they're just the world watches for the Olympics, but the world Mm -hmm. championships are still very important for national pride and dominance. And there's a whole lot of other things that go along with that. Mm -hmm. And so 
I could see why you wanted to like kind of get that one before you before you hung it up. Right, we wanted when, to get over that that last little hump. When you did, did you go right into coaching? Um, I was actually already coaching at the time. Oh wow! So I actually started coaching at Illinois in 2009. So I had I was finishing up my master's, actually starting my doctorate, and um, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. Still knew it wanted to be sport, but wasn't sure where I was going to go. And then my college coach, who was still here at Illinois, called and was like, our women's job is coming open. You know, I've seen you coach at camps. And he'd actually taken me around the country and around the world to coach at camps with him. He's like, I've seen you coach. You're a great teacher. I would love it if you'd come back to Illinois and and help lead our program. And I was like, I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this sounds like the perfect fit, you know, coming back to my alma mater being able to coach alongside someone who's the best of the best, who was my mentor as a young athlete. So I started coaching in 2009, continued playing for that one year. So I was training and coaching, trying to learn how to coach with all they don't tell you about coaching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then when I stopped playing in uh, 2010, that's kind of when I started thinking about, you know, all right, I'm coaching at Illinois. This is great. I have aspirations for national team coaching as well and was able to get on a staff for my first junior national team for wheelchair basketball. So kind of started my national team coaching career after that. Mm. And then you rose up the ranks and you became, what, what happened first? Did you become the head coach at University of Illinois or did you become the head national team coach first? Which yeah. one happened first? Yeah, so I was the head coach at Illinois first. And then just kind of, again, I think, was a really quick learning curve here. And I had great mentors and incredible people around me who supported my development. And in 2011, actually, I was selected as an assistant coach for our junior national team on the women's side. And, you know, kind of went through the process of that. And actually like two months, I don't even know if it was two months out from our junior world championship, our head coach resigned. Mm. And so I was elevated into the head coaching position at that point. And at that time I was, 30. I'm like, all right, we're going to figure this out. We're going to do it. (laughs) So not too long, actually, out of being teammates with a couple of the athletes who I was now coaching on the junior national team. So we took that team, went to junior world championships. And then in 2013, I was named the senior national team head coach. Holy cow. I mean, that is like a (laughs) meteoric rise. It kind of is. (laughs) It kind of is. Did you already have a coaching philosophy? Did you have to develop one at the time? Like, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. I had to develop one. So, you know, my my undergraduate degree is in kinesiology, just general kinesiology degree. My master's degree is in um, human performance and pedagogy. So, you know, I I understood Uh, principles of teaching and, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. And so I, I, I get all of that. I had no idea what a coaching philosophy was until I started coaching and, you know, my, our men's coach here, who was my coaching mentor, you know, he would talk about what he would use to make base decisions on. And we had a program philosophy, but I never really actually drilled down fully into what my personal coaching philosophy was until I went to um, some coaching camps um, with the Alliance of Women's Coaches, which is now We Coach. They're an organization that supports the growth and development of women's coaches. Mm. So I went to some of their programming and that's 
where I started to fully understand why it's important that kind of know thyself first Mm -hmm. before we can then begin to, you know, impart what we know for our student athletes. So I think I did an okay job when I first started coaching. I think I had some good people around me, but that's really when I started to hit my stride as far as knowing myself and knowing what was important to me as a coach and owning that and, you know, fully living in that every day. Wow. Yeah. Cause that is like, until you know what you value, then you can't just, then you can't coach. Like if you don't have core values lined up, then like, what are your decisions based on? Just like exactly. any business, if you don't have a, a vision, a mission and core values, then really you're rudderless. Yeah. The technical tactical component it's overvalued to an extent. I mean, in any sport, you got to have talent and then mm-hmm. can you steer the talent? Right. Yes. Like you do have to be technically sound. The tactics mm-hmm. are important, but if all you care mm-hmm. about is the whiteboard, you will lose. Yeah, absolutely. And we coach people, right? Like, yes, I coach a game. I coach a sport, but when it boils down to it, I coach people. And in order to do that, I have to be fully grounded and knowing my person right? and knowing myself, because like you said, you're going to be rudderless. Coaches have to make tough calls all the time or just decisions in general. Not all decisions are hard or, or tough, but I think when you have those values to kind of go back on and that philosophy to go back on, those decisions are, are quite easy. Spoken like a true pro <laughs> and you, and you've won at the highest level. I mean, mm-hmm. you've won in Rio now you're prepping for Tokyo? I actually, so after 2016, I chose to step down from oh, the national team. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? I, what I realized that moment, sorry to kind of spring that on you. That's fine. <laughs> but what I realized after through coaching um, that team through Rio is that I love coaching college basketball. I love mm. it. I love the age that our student athletes are at. And not that I didn't love coaching the national team. I did. I, those Our athletes were phenomenal. I learned so much. I became a better coach through that process. I had both jobs at the same time. I was working <laughs> my full-time job here in Illinois and basically a full-time job with the national team. And, you know, what I learned through that process was that I just, I love the day-to-day with my student athletes here in Illinois. And I was not able to give them the best of me through that process because I had one foot in my Illini job and and one foot in my national team job. And I was stretched so thin that I, I was trying to give my best to both. I did the best I could at the time. And, you know, we were successful in Rio. We won. And I'm so proud of that. And I'm so proud of the journey of that group of athletes because they were incredible and their journey was incredible. They finished fourth at the London Paralympics and we came back around to win in Rio. So their, their journey was just so incredible and how they owned that process. But man, there was nothing like every single day being able to be in the gym with, you know, 18 to 23 year olds Mm. and just watching that growth. You get to see it every single day. And and sometimes, sometimes it's challenging and that age group is going to challenge you and and that's okay. That's part of their growth process too. But at the end of the day, nothing beat our student athletes here in Illinois. And so I chose to step away fully, be able to fully recommit hmm. back to our job here. And it's, 
the class of student athletes that I recruited that were freshmen, my last year of coaching the national team are now graduating. And I've seen that full cycle of growth from them. And man, it's just, it's been so incredible. You are, I love your enthusiasm. Like you truly (laughs) love what you do. And that's, uh, sadly, that's not everybody. And, um, And no matter what field they're in, whether it's education, whether it's business, whether it's, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I love the, how passionate you are about really impacting other people's lives. So what do you think? I mean, this is a podcast about high performance. Mm-hmm. About those that are high performers and those that support and develop, which you fall into both categories. So what is your yes. definition of high performance? I've thought a lot about this, you know, since we chatted earlier and then just sort of, I think I've gone through a couple of evolutions as a coach. and you know, I think where I am right now is that I think of high performance as you're a high performing person, you're a high performing athlete, you're a high performing coach. If who you have become in the pursuit of your goals is better than you were when you started. Right. So, and what that means is, are you living in your values every single day? Are you, you know, growing in your character skills every single day? Are you loving the process? You might not love the process every single day, but <laughs> are you are you in the process every single day? Is that what your focus is? Is your focus, you know, on what am I doing today to become a better person and a better athlete? We focus a lot on, on becoming better people here at Illinois and the pursuit of that and what that means, you know, what character skills are attached to that. I think that's what a high performance athlete is and a high performance person or a high performance coach is, you know, every single day you getting better in those skills? Not are you getting some great outcomes and winning gold medals? Those are great, but it's who you are in that pursuit. You becoming a better person. I love it. Last question. Yeah. Not only are you developing high performers, but you still are a high performer because you're the head coach. Yeah. So how do you take care of yourself so that you can take care of others and so that you can be making great decisions when it matters most? Yeah. That's a, that's a tough question. That's something that I will readily admit I did not do well. I had two jobs at one time. I did not right. do that very well. And so I, I think that's a place where I've definitely gotten better and thought about it over time. You know, I've kind of set boundaries as to when I'm going to leave my office every day mm-hmm. to be able to go home to be with my family because, you know, that's important that I have that boundary set. For me, that's part of self care is that I get to go home and I get to be with my family. And I get to have an evening. That's a big deal for me. I think part of self-care is actually what I just talked about is being able to separate coach from who I am as a person, which I think is tough for a lot of us because I grew up with an athletic identity, right? And I attached my identity so tightly to being an athlete. I've attached my identity so closely to being a coach that I have to work to separate those things. And I think that's really important for self-care for coaches. If we can separate who we are from what we do. And so again, that's a journey and that's a process, particularly like right now with what we're going through during COVID. And there's a point in time where I could not be on court and coach my athletes. And that was driving me crazy. So, you know, it's, it's that process of figuring out like all of the the characteristics that I bring to being a coach, being a great teacher, having my personal values, I can still do all of those things without having coach attached to my identity. That was a really important piece. So that's a big piece. And then recently, actually, 
during uh, our little winter break when our athletes were home, I was getting a little bit bored, a little bit stir crazy, like can't leave the house all that much right now. And I was like, I've got to do something with my time. So I started baking. Love it. Because I love like the Great British Baking Show and like kind of all these baking shows or whatever. And my partner was like, well, why don't you start baking something? Like use the knowledge that you're getting from these baking shows and let's get you baking. So every now and again, I'll like, baking for me is like just completely different, not completely different, but it's something different than coaching. And it's something different than sport. And I can just sort of lose myself in it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And, you know, no one cares if what I make doesn't taste good. And it's sort of that being able to do it, right? And like just kind of having something outside of the day-to-day. There is no doubt in my mind that you're going to become an amazing baker. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. That would be great. I have to like fight the urge to like want to like put all of my focus and energy to it, right? I think that's a hard thing for those of us maybe who have gone to a high level in sport. Like I have to do that with myself all the time. Like I play a lot of pickleball when the weather is nice here. And it took me like a whole year to fully like accept that I didn't have to be the best in the world <laughs> playing pickleball. <laughs> but like I could just do it to have fun and something to do with my partner and our friends. And like, you know, like that was, that took me some time. So if I become an amazing baker, that'll be awesome. Sorry, no pressure. I didn't mean to put you, now you're going to like spiral out of control. and I'm going to go home and start like, I've got to bake today. <laughs> I've got to get better. I didn't mean to trigger you there. I apologize. No, no, that's all right. That's all right. Stephanie, you are an impressive human being and I'm very yes. thankful for you as a person and you as a coach. We need more coaches like you. Thank um, you. And I love your story and I know the story is still being written. And so I'm just excited to see what happens. But thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute blessing having you here. Oh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me on the podcast and and kind of letting me talk about disability and sport and, you know, our amazing student athletes. So I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, Sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high-performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.